Several weeks ago, I filled in for Pastor Michael, who was ready to do his last in a series, great series he's doing on overcoming. And uh, uh, he was just a little under the weather that night. So I said, I'll trade you tonight for uh, we're going to be away um, in a couple of weeks because our youngest son's getting married. And so he's going to finish his series, uh, I think it's on the 17th of, um, of June, I guess it is. Anyway, praise God. So, um, I'm going to endeavor to finish what we started several weeks ago. So let's pray. That's a good thing to do in church, isn't it? Father, we thank you tonight for the presence of your Spirit as we've worshipped you and honored you. And we thank you now for the Word of God. This is unlike any book. This is unlike any teaching. Because this is the living, breathed Word of God. This is you speaking to us tonight by your Spirit. And Father, we pray tonight that the anointing of your Spirit would take the words that are in this page and the words that are in my heart and bring them forth with spirit and life and touch each one of our hearts tonight. Lord, for whatever it is that's needed tonight, there may be some here tonight that need encouragement. May you encourage them and give them hope. There may be some here tonight, Father, that that just need to be strengthened in what they believe and strengthen them tonight, Father. There may be someone here that needs some correction. Lord, we thank you that your word is profitable for that because you love us. So whatever it is, we just open ourselves for the precious Holy Spirit to do what only he can do in our hearts. And we thank you for that in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. It was one of those days I really didn't have any time to prepare. (laughs) So this is what went off in my heart. So we'll prepare together. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Ephesians chapter 2. We talked several weeks ago when I filled in for him. I I did it. The the message that night was we walk by faith and not by sight. And um, because the Bible says a number of things about faith is so critical because we're saved by faith. We'll see that tonight. But not only that, the just, those who have been made right in God's eyes, we live by faith. It's not just something we do in an emergency. It's not just something we do under pressure. It's not just something we do when we need something. It's we walk by faith. And the challenge is that most Christians are not walking by faith. They're walking by sight. And the Bible calls that being carnal. Carnal doesn't mean sinful. It means we're dominated by our natural senses and by the, by the things of this world. And our bodies are of this world. But if you're born again, the spirit inside of you is born of God. And the kingdom of God is inside of you. And that kingdom is a spirit realm. And so we need to learn to walk more conscious of the spirit reality on the inside of us than the natural reality on the outside. And the, and the, the evidence of where you are in that is when suddenly your world gets turned up upside down. Suddenly you get a diagnosis that you weren't expecting or something terrible happens or you lose your job or something like that. And all the things that you built into your life are what's going to come to the forefront and scream at you and try to take control of your life. So the old expression is the best time to lay a solid foundation is not in a storm. It's when the sun's out and it's nice and peaceful. It's very hard to lay a foundation in the middle of a hurricane. So when things are going well for you right now, that's the time to build up your faith. That's the time to strengthen things. So we saw that we're supposed to walk by faith and not by sight, and the just are to live by faith and not by sight. So we're going to look tonight at just, we're going to talk about, well, I'll read the scripture to you, and then I'll tell you what we're going to talk about. We're going to start in verse 4. He's talked about in the first chapter what God's done for us. And then in the first three verses that we were dead, but God has made us alive together with Christ. And then verse 4 says, but God who is rich in mercy, we could spend half a year on that. God is rich in mercy. 
God is rich in mercy. Rich is a relative term, which means it's nice to have a rich relative. <laughs> no, that's not what it means. <laughs> what it means is, I've been in, we've been in, in, in third world countries on a mission field when if you have a bicycle, you're rich. If you have a Bible in some countries, you are wealthy. And how many do you have at home? How many do I? I must got 30 on my iPad. So compared to some people, I'm wealthy. I'm rich. So it all depends on who you're... Com- so when we talk about God's rich, God has no one to be compared to. God owns everything, and what He's rich in is mercy. God, who is rich in mercy, because of, motivated by His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our sins or transgressions or trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And He raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For grace you have been saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's the gospel. That is a mouthful. But I want to go back through that, and I want to show you, I want to ask you, in these verses, how many things is it we're supposed to do? And how many things has God done? Verse 4, but God, so that's who that's about, who is rich in mercy because of or motivated by His great love with which He loved us. So God loved us. Doesn't talk about how much we've loved Him because God loved us. When we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive. So God's rich in mercy. God loved us. And when we were dead, God made us alive. So there's three things. By grace you were saved. That's something God did. Verse 6, and He raised us up. We didn't. He raised us up. That's 6. And He made us sit together. That's 7 or 6, excuse me. In heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the ages to come, He might show what good, solid, faithful Christians we are. So that in the ages to come, He might show what our prayer life has done. So that He might show, see what great churches we built. In fact, it's not to see anything about us except look at this, that in the ages to come, He's talking about in the next age, after this age is ended and the next age is birth, in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness towards us. So what God is going to demonstrate and show off through you and me is what His grace has done with a mess like me. 
I put it this way sometimes. You and I are trophies of his grace. (laughs) God's going to show us off, but not for what we've done. He's going to show us off for what he's done in us in spite of us. Because this goes on to say, God is going to demonstrate to all the angelic forces not how powerful he is. God's almighty. When you're almighty, you don't, have to, you don't have to impress anybody. You and I are never going to impress God, and God's not going to try to impress you. Why would he want to impress us? Why does he want to impress us? He's very secure in who he is. <laughs> So God's not going to show off his great power. If he wanted to do that, all you had to do is be around at the creation. What is it God wants to show off? What is it God wants to demonstrate? God wants to demonstrate what is the changing power of love and of grace. Which is why he says in Romans 13 to be to be kind to one another and to overcome evil with good. This is why Jesus told us in Matthew, he says, if somebody does something against you, pray for them. If someone is purposely, maliciously persecuting you, pray for them. That you may be like your Father who is in heaven. God wants to demonstrate in the ages to come what the amazing ability of His grace and His love is able to do, and you and I are evidence number one. We are plaintiff's evidence one or A, whichever it is. God can look at your messed up life and say, look what I did with David. Not what David did. Look what I did with David. That's what grace is. So why are we trying to prove ourselves? Who are we trying to prove ourselves to? One another? Ourselves? God? Well, let's go on and look at this. So in verse 7, In the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness towards us. Wow. I'm telling you, there's so much in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2 to just meditate on and chew on it. It is like fine cheesecake. (laughs) Tiramisu, creme brulee, whatever it is that excites your taste buds. It is like the richest of food to just chew on and just, boy, when I have something like that, uh, my, my granddaughter is an ice cream connoisseur. <laughs> if you want to know how to eat ice cream, go out with Emma to Friendly's. That's her grandmother's favorite thing to do. And she will take a bowl of ice cream and she will meticulously work her way around it. <laughs> And she will, I'm losing some of you right now. She will savor every little moment of it. And when she gets down to the last, she's scraping the bottom to get every little, and lick the spoon. And just, she's getting every ounce of flavor 
out of that ice cream because she just treasures that ice cream. They've got a dog at home. He's an English lab. He's a small horse. And one of the treats they give him is these little doggy ice cream cups. So they'll take it and throw it on the floor of the kitchen with him. He does not savor it. He does not go... I mean, he goes... Oh! He does not enjoy the flavor of it. He just eats the thing. And that's what most Christians do with the Word. We just eat it. Or and many of us don't even eat it. We just kind of roll it around in our mouth and spit it back out again. See, when you just read the Word, that's what you've done. You haven't swallowed it. You're enjoying the moment of it, the taste of it. But that doesn't do you any good until you swallow it and get it inside you. That's what meditation does. And meditation takes something that, that we have a great lack of, and that's time and effort. It doesn't happen in five minutes. It takes work and it takes determination, but oh, does it pay off. But there's a, there's a step beyond meditation. I never taught this before. There is, there, is, there is savoring the Word. And that's when you squeeze every morsel out of it that you're able to do. And the wonderful thing about the Word of God is you can go back in it again tomorrow and squeeze more out of it because it's alive. When I first got saved, the first book I started reading, I was like, was it Pastor Sam Sunday's talking about it? I devoured this thing. I mean, I couldn't put it down. I couldn't wait to get home from work, eat supper, get my kids in bed, my, my wife in bed, you know, spend some time with her, and then stay up until one or two in the morning just devouring this thing. I couldn't get enough. I had to make myself go to bed and put it down. And, 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 but I took the book of Ephesians, and I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read this book all the way through every day for a month. And my mind says, oh, you won't, you'll get, you'll, when you, get, you won't make it through a week because once you've read it, you've read it. Oh, was I wrong. Because I got to the end of the month and I didn't want to start Philippians. I wanted to keep going in Ephesians. And it's still my favorite book in the Bible. It is so rich. I spent some time last year just going through the first six verses just the way I'm talking about you. And I got so much out of that that deepened my relationship with God and how much He loves me and the grace He's lavished upon me by just chewing on that Word in the morning. Sometimes, you know, instead of reading a whole book or a whole chapter, take a verse and just chew on it. You may get more out of chewing on one verse than you would reading three chapters. And Because I used to just race through things. And so, so this is what this is like. This is what chapter 1 and chapter 2 is like. Verse 8 is what I wanted to get to. Well, let's go back to verse 7. <laughs> that he might show, listen to this, the exceeding, this is what meditation is like, exceeding riches. Not just he's rich. He's abundant. He's overabundant riches in what? His grace towards us. In chapter 1 in the New King James, in the, uh, in the New American Standard, it says he's lavished his grace on us. And when I taught uh, uh, renewing the mind, I would use that verse as an example of something. And I would use, talk about what the word lavish means. This is what meditation is like. Lavish means, sometimes we think what God does is he knows just how much you need so, you know, Tim needs a little bit of, of grace tonight, so, excuse me. 
get the eyedropper out and just give out to him a, a little bit of grace because Pat might need some because she's living with him. And then, <laughs> I'm just teasing. You're still, they're, they're still newlyweds. And David needs a little bit of grace. And, you know, so, but, but I, I got to make sure I got enough here, you know, because I don't want to run out. I know my, his mercies are new every morning, but I've had a lot of you need some grace today. So I may run out tonight. God's mercy never ends. But it says he lavishes it upon it. And I've told this story when I taught uh, school of ministry on this. That when I, I was the oldest of five boys, and, and, and we, because we were five boys, and we didn't get ice cream a lot. But when we got it, it was a big deal. And my mother would come home from the store with his, well, with five of us, we needed two half gallons of ice cream. And, you know, she would take the ice cream and she would measure it out because <laughs> there were five of us boys. And I would have eaten just one of them because I love ice cream. And then she would go to the cabinet and take out this brown jar of Hershey's chocolate. And she would, yeah, I got you, John, okay. <laughs> and, and she would take, because that was the old days, she would take a can opener and do the little on this side and that, turn it around and do the on this side. And then she would take it and she would kind of measure it out over mine and then measure it out over her and go right on down the line to my youngest brother. And that's how we see God does with mercy. Lavish means you take the Hershey can and you don't go to the little can opener. You go over to the electric can opener and you stick it up and then you go... Put it in the trash can. And you go over to my bowl of vanilla ice cream and you just turn the can upside down. And all I needed was a little bit, but you just... Pour the whole thing out all over John's ice cream. But the wonderful thing about God's grace is then he comes right over to Tim's ice cream bowl and he does the same thing over Tim's ice cream bowl because it never ends. Lavish means he doesn't give you what you need. He pours it all out on you. He lavishes it on you. He pours, no, because he's not, listen carefully, he's not giving you what you need. He's giving you what he wants to give to you of himself. God's not sitting there bargaining with us, saying, all right, how much do you need tonight, Denny? I mean, I gave you some yesterday. Come on, Denny. Come on. You ought to get it by now. You know, no. God's, way, God's trying to find ways to get it to us. God's not sitting in heaven trying to make sure, you know, you've got to pull the right handle on the, on the slot machine to make sure all those something's come up, and then, well, I guess I've got to give it to you. God's trying to find ways to get it to us. That's why he says over and over in the New Testament, ask. God wouldn't tell us to ask if he doesn't want us to give. Many times he's frustrated with us. I want to do it. Please ask me. Please ask me. And even when there are conditions, it's like, please meet the condition so I can do this. God's character and nature is he's not just generous, he's extravagant. I mean, look at nature. Look at the sunsets. The next time we see one, it's been a while. Just stop and look at the sunsets. And just, wow. You painted that just for me. And he painted one for you. 
And what you see may be different than the one he painted for me. And the one he painted for me changes every moment. But he paints these beautiful, nature is so, so amazing. So incredibly amazing. God is extravagant. And the thing he's most extravagant about is his love for you. His love for you. And when it begins to dawn on you how much God loves you and how secure you are in that love, faith becomes a very easy thing. Because faith isn't something you do. Faith is a relationship with him and knowing what he's like so you can trust him. All right, well, that wasn't where I thought we were going, but that was good. (laughs) Verse 8. By grace, this amazing, extravagant richness of his grace, you have been saved through faith. And that, that faith, is not of yourself. Even that's a gift. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. So what we're going to talk about tonight is this relationship between grace and faith. Because I think many Christians, until you understand this difference, we're frustrated because we're trying to do things God's already done because God has a part to play in this and we have a part to play in this. We're going to find tonight God's already done His part. So we can't do His part for Him and He not only won't do our part, He can't do our part. Only we can do our part and only God can do His part. And so many Christians get frustrated because they don't understand the difference. They think grace is just some general benevolent feeling God has towards us. And faith is just this amorphous thing that we got to do, but obviously I'm not doing it right because it's not working because I'm not getting answers to what I'm asking for and I'm getting more and more frustrated. So we must not have enough faith. I must not be using my faith the right way. There's something wrong with my faith. And if the devil continue to take... Slow down, John. If the devil can get you to think there's something wrong with your faith, listen carefully. If the devil can get you to think there's something wrong with your faith, then all your attention is going to get on you to fix you. And we just read it's all what God did, not what we do. Now, there's a part we play, but that's easy when you understand what God's done. All right, so let's go back to verse 8. For by grace, that word by in the Greek is dia, which in that context means through the agency or the means of grace. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Grace is God's side, and faith is is our side. Grace is God's side. That word grace is the Greek word charis, which means a whole bunch of things, but it means a favorable attitude towards. But it's not just sitting in a chair feeling good about somebody. It's a, it's a favorable attitude to do whatever is necessary. It comes out of a word that originally meant uh, uh, what we would use the term gracious. 
So there are certain people that have certain, they're, they're very gracious in how they walk or move. They're gracious in how they entertain. It, it, but it, it, then it grew to me, have a meaning, which was to appreciate the beauty or value of something. And so God's grace towards us comes from his appreciation of our value to him. He looks at you and me. He doesn't see us the way we see us. There's a verse in Isaiah 43 that, I, Lord, when I was going through those treatments last summer, the Lord, I just went through this every day. And one of the things, he's talking to Israel, but it's speaking to us. He says, because you are precious in my sight. And I was meditating on this every morning because that's what gave me strength. I, I, because you are precious in my sight. And that word precious began to stand out to me. So I began to meditate on precious. And I began to realize what kinds of things are precious? Well, it can be jewelry that's precious. But what makes the jewelry precious? This is a ring. I don't, don't, didn't normally wear rings. But this is a ring. It's not a particularly valuable ring. But it's valuable to me because my wife gave it to me on my 60th birthday last year. <laughs> well, maybe it was a little longer than that. <clears throat> I have... I have uh, 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 some rings from my grandfather. I have a gold watch from my grandfather. And it's probably worth something in and of itself, but it's priceless to me, not because it's a gold pocket watch, but because it was my grandfather's pocket watch, and I loved him. He was my papa, and I loved him dearly. And it's the only thing of his I have left, and it's precious to me. But what makes that watch... I can't wear it because they don't make clothes nowadays that wear pocket watches. I used to, when I was a lawyer, had a three-piece suit and a vest, I would wear it sometimes. And when I first came here, but those kind of suits are out of, out of style now. And even suits are getting out of style. But, um, so I don't, wear, I don't use it, but it's precious to me, not because of the watch itself, but because its value is in what it means to me. Our neighbors have two large dogs. One of them is very friendly. The other is not so friendly. And the one that's not so friendly, there's a little break in our, in, in our, in our uh, fence where one of the slats is broken. And when he gets really going, he has a way of sticking his nose through that slat and barking at us. That dog's not precious to me. He's an annoyance to me. But to my neighbors, he's precious. Same dog. Invaluable to my neighbor, a pest to me. So the value is not in the dog itself, or he'd be valuable to everybody. The value is in what place that dog or that pocket watch has to the beholder. What's the old expression? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, well, value is in the heart of the beholder. I went through all of that because your preciousness to God doesn't come from you. Just like the preciousness of that dog doesn't come from the dog. And the preciousness of that watch doesn't come from the watch. It's what the watch means to me. It's what the dog needs to my neighbor. And it's what you mean to God. And the proof of how precious you are to him is what he was willing to pay for you. 
when you have something valuable like a ring or something like that, one of the things you're supposed to do is if your house is insured is to let the insurance company know if you have any items of unusual value so it can be listed on your insurance policy so that the value of that is set. Our policies in here, there's some of our equipment, our audio equipment and things like that. We have to give them a stated value. It's what it means to us. We value that based on what it would cost us to replace it. So the value is placed on what it means to us on what it cost us. Your value to God is measured by what He was willing to pay for you. God demonstrated His own love for you in that while we were yet sinners, in our eyes, in each other's eyes, we were like filthy rags. In His eyes, we were precious how Jesus on the cross could look down at the very men that had just nailed him to that cross, spit on him, mocked him, called him all manner of vile names, and he could look down on them and say, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. Amazing grace. So grace is God's side. And on this grace, we're not going to have time to go through and look at the scriptures, but you'll just have to trust me in this. On this, God, God has, from God's side, he's already done everything he's going to do. It's called the completed or finished work of Christ. The last words on that cross, Jesus said, it is finished. What was finished wasn't his life. What was finished was what he came to purchase back from God. And that was everything that was necessary to put mankind back where God, mankind was when God originally created him. Where there was no hindrance. Where Adam and Eve could walk in the physical presence of God. And that day will come when you and I can walk in the physical presence of God. But in the meantime, God's tangible presence is in us. So grace is God's side. Because unless God gives it, I don't care how much faith you got, it's not going to do any good. But faith is the, our side simply by which we receive it. And this is where people struggle. Because look, look what he says here. He says... Uh, not, verse 9, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So what God has done for us, we have no credit in it because we took no part in it. It was all God's work. But it's received by faith. Go back to verse 8. By grace... You have been saved through faith. Through means the conduit or the ad channel or the means by which that grace got from God into you. I don't know why I'm on ice cream tonight, but this is an example that I use. Maybe I'll have some when I go home. In the summertime, I try to not go there on Mondays because Newport Creamery has this thing called an awful awful. And on Monday they give you two for the price of one, 
and I'm enough of a New Englander to say, I'm not going to waste the one <laughs> when I didn't need the first one. But when I get that awful, awful, it's in that cup. And I can look at it, my mouth can water, I can feel the coldness in the cup. But that awful, awful does not give me any pleasure until it gets in me, until it's received by me. And the way I do it, because it's so thick, is you get this big, thick straw, and you stick the straw down in it, and you begin to draw it up, and the awful, awful, the vanilla awful, awful, or coffee, whatever you like, goes from the container through the straw and is received by me. That straw is just the means by which that awful, awful is received and enjoyed by me. In the same way, faith is the straw by which God's wonderful milkshake, His wonderful gifts are drawn out of, out of His presence and drawn into my life and received into my life. When that awful, awful goes into the straw, that's not when it was created. It was given to me when that clerk handed it to me. And everything God's ever wanted for you, everything God ever paid for you, everything God ever desired for you, He bankrupt heaven and gave heaven to you in Christ Jesus. It's all in that cup, which is Christ. He is the fullness of all. The fullness is in Him. And when God gave Christ to you, He gave everything you are ever going to need. Comfort, strength, wisdom, provision, joy, peace. Everything was given to you in Christ. Paid for. But all it takes is to get all that gift of Christ into you to receive the enjoyment and the means, the conduit, the straw by which all this goodness, provision, and grace is received into your life is through faith. Faith is just the means that allows you to receive something that's already given to you. And the reason most of us struggle is we think we have to exercise strong faith in order to get God to make the milkshake. Now I'm on this side of the counter, and if I plead long enough and hard enough and high of enough faith, maybe God will go over to the ice cream thing and dip out that ice cream and put it in reluctantly, put the syrup in the milk, stick it in there, bzzz, bring it over and say, all right, you finally given enough. Here it is. No, it's already given to you. But you're not enjoying it because it's received through faith. Without faith, you cannot receive because what faith simply does is believe that that milkshake is there and it's yours to drink. If I go into the to Newport Creamery and stand there and I never ask for anything and I'm standing at the counter and go, why don't they ever give me a milk? I'm in here for an awful, awful, and I, they never give me. It never works. 
I've been believing for an awful, awful. I've been believing for what I can taste it. I've been confessing it. I've been doing all that. But there's no awful, awful there. I don't feel any awful, awful. Of course, I didn't ask for it. <laughs> and it may be all lined up on the counter. And I'm walking around confessing, I have an awful, awful. 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 I have an awful. And sitting right there. Faith goes and picks it up, sticks the straw in, and begins to act as if it's mine. But if I'm there with Nick, and I'm not sure whether that awful, awful is his or not, never. <laughs> these water bottles are great. But I started going to these half ones because around here people have a habit, as we do at home sometimes, of drinking part of one and setting it down. And then I run across it and I'm not sure whether that's mine <laughs> or maybe that was Pastor Michael's. So if I'm not sure whether it's mine or not, guess what? I'm not going to drink of it. I'll only drink of it if I know for certain that it's mine to receive. And if I'm not convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt in my heart that God has given healing to me, if I'm not convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that God has paid for my sins on that cross and He's not holding any of my sins against me and that I am clean and holy and without blame before Him in Christ, if I'm not convinced of that, I will not act as if I'm clean. I will not act as if I'm healed. I will still try to get it. I'm still trying to get it because I don't believe God's given it. That would be as if the clerk's standing there and he's holding this awful, awful out to me and I'm saying, I believe I've received, I believe I've received, I believe I've received, I believe I've received, I believe I've received. Take it! <laughs> I bet God sometimes like, will you just take it? <laughs> but if I don't believe that's mine, I'm not going to have the boldness to reach out and to take it. So go to verse 9. It's not of works. Works is something I do to earn something. Lest anyone boast. You know it's works when you think you can take credit for something. Oh, here's a good clue. Because we say, well, I don't do that. Well, let me ask you this question. When your prayers don't get answered, how do you react? Do you get mad? Do you pout? Do you tell God, but I did what I'm supposed to do? That's like saying to the clerk, but I, but I paid the money. And he's handing that to me. But the money's been paid. And he's handed it out to me. See, when you get upset... It's because you think you were entitled to something you didn't get. And you're only entitled to something you've earned. You put in 40 hours a week at work, and it comes time for paycheck, and they say, well, you know what? We didn't feel like it today, this week. Thanks for all your work. We really appreciated your service here. Look forward to seeing you Monday morning. Wait a minute. I earned that. I'm entitled to that. And we get mad and upset if we don't get what we deserve. So when we get mad at God, it's because we think we've done something and He's cheated us. He's failed us. That's not grace. 
That's works, lest anyone should boast. Boasting isn't just, see what kind of job I did. Boasting is also, I'm not getting what I'm entitled to. We better move on. <laughs> verse 10, we have that. Yeah, verse 10. For we are His workmanship, not ours. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto, or some translations say, unto good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Grace doesn't mean I just sit around on my blessed assurance in church and say, oh, isn't it wonderful? There are things I am created to do, but I don't do those things to get God's grace or favor. I can do those things because I have God's favor, because God has blessed me, because God does provide for me. All right, let's go over to James chapter 2. We're going to look at this in a more practical sense in the time that we have left. James chapter 2. I knew we'd get to James chapter 2 eventually. <laughs> we just snuck up on it. <clears throat> James chapter 2, verse 14. What does a prophet, my brother, if someone says to you he has faith but doesn't have works? Now this is going to look like it's just the opposite. Can that faith save him? Now he's going to get very practical here. If a brother or sister is naked or destitute of daily food, and one of you says to him, Depart, be in peace, be warmed and filled, but you don't give him the things which he needed for his body, what a good is that? What does that profit? In the same way, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That word means useless. So what he's saying, he's using an example. He said, if somebody says, well, I have faith, and, and you don't see some evidence of that, then that's not real faith. And he uses the example. It's like somebody, it's like somebody has good intentions, and so, you, know, you find somebody that's a brother or sister that's struggling, and you say, you know, bless you. And you have the means to meet their need, and you just say, bless you, be warmed and be filled. He said, what good is that? You've just given nice words. See, a lot of people's faith is just words. So faith by itself, it does not have works, is dead. Now, a better way to express that is faith without corresponding action is useless. Faith can be seen. Faith is not a state of mind. It's not... Mm, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. You're exercising faith right now, and I can tell some things you believe. I, be I know you believe that chair will hold you. The way I know it is you sat in it without jumping up and down and testing it out. You exercise, you believe that chair would hold you, and the proof of what you believed is what you did. Let's go on. Verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And I will say, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. I'll sh you can tell what I believe by what I do. Verse 19. You believe there's one God. Whoop-de-doo. Uh, you do well. <clears throat> Even the demons believe and tremble. 
That's an amazing statement. Well, I know I'm okay. I believe in God. Well, the devil believes in God. Where did that get him? The demons believe in God. That's why when I give an altar call, I said it's not enough to believe there's a God. The devil believes there's a God. In fact, he knows there's a God more than you and I know there's a God. He's seen him. And they tremble, which puts them ahead of most Christians. Verse 20. Do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works, the word is useless? Verse 21. He's going to use an example here. Was not Abraham our father, our father in the faith, justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? Now, I can you explain that because we've got some people that are new and we don't have the time to go back and read this story which comes out of Genesis 22. Abraham was a man that God chose to reveal himself to so that through Abraham, God could create a whole new people which is Israel, the nation of Israel or the Hebrews. And God told him when he was 75 years old and his wife was 65 years old that he was going to be the father of many nations. At that time, they had no children. Sarah was barren. And they were both past child-producing age. And God said, and God often God picks people that can't do it in themselves and says, it's going to happen just because I said so. And he said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And it says in Genesis 15 that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But so, I don't have the time to go through the whole story tonight, but Abraham goes along and nothing happens. And, and finally about 10 years into this, Abraham and Sarah figure out, you know what, maybe God needs some help. Obviously, he's not having a child through me, Sarah says, so why don't you take my slave servant girl, Hagar, and have a relationship with her and see if God will give us a child through her. And they did get a child. She did conceive and brought forth a child and they named his name Ishmael. And they presented Ishmael to God and said, see, we helped you out. And here's a good example of what I talked about earlier. God rejected that because they had a part to play in it. They helped God out. They took what God said, and when it didn't seem to be working on God's term, they decided to help God out, and God rejected him because he was not a son of God's promise. He was a son of their effort, their works. In Galatians 4, God talks about these two covenants, there's the covenant that God, that of the, whereby Ishmael was produced, which was by the works of their flesh. And he said, that's present day Israel. But the next child that came as simply as a result of their believing God is the child of the new covenant, which is received by faith alone. So what God said is only when you believe my word and a child is produced through your faith in my promise, that's the child I'm going to honor. And when, when he's a when he's hundred... And Sarah's 90, Isaac is born simply because they believed God's promise. And Isaac grows up to be a young man. So he believed God's promise, the child is produced, and God has declared Abraham righteous because he simply believed God and took him at his word. But then when Isaac's a young man, most likely, in Genesis 22, God says, take your son, your only son, and go to a mountain I'm going to show you, and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me. And that didn't mean send him to college and pay the college tuition. 
that meant putting, bind him up, put him on a wooden altar, take a knife, drive it through his heart, and then burn the whole thing up as an offering to God. And to shorten the story, they go the three days, they get there. The amazing faith of Abraham is he turns to his servants. He said, you stay here. The lad and I are going to go up the mountain and we will worship God and we will return to you. Gets up the mountain, builds the altar, ties his son up, lays his son down, picks up the knife to sacrifice him and an angel speaks and says, stop. Now I know that you truly reverence me. Now I know that I am first in your heart. You have trusted me to the point you're willing to drive a knife into your son's heart because I told you to do that. Now, I used to sit there and think, wow, what amazing faith Abraham had that he would just give his sons up and sacrifice his son and give him up. But that's not what he was going to do. If you go into Hebrews chapter 11, it says somewhere around verse 26 or somewhere in there, it says Abraham believed. See, this is the amazing thing about Abraham's faith. And it took 25 years for God to get this through to him that all he had to do is believe God and whatever God said would come to pass and God would never change his mind. God said, through that boy, you're going to be the father of many nations. And now God's telling him to kill him. Can you see where those are a little inconsistent? Most of us would have rebuked the second word. I get behind me, Satan, that can't be God because we would have reasoned. That can't be God, that get behind me, Satan because I don't want to do this, so get behind me, Satan. No, Abraham never took his eyes off that first promise. To the extent, see, God was testing Abraham's faith. To the extent that Abraham was willing to drive a knife in that boy's heart, because in Hebrews 11 it says, because he believed that if necessary, God would raise him back up from the dead so that he could fulfill the promise. Abraham grew to trust God so much that even when God told him to drive a knife in his son's heart, he would obey him fully because whatever God needed to do to fulfill that first promise, God would do it. And then when God says, Abraham was justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son. Justified means God, Abraham's faith in me was fully established when he acted on it to the ultimate extent. Because it's one thing to say, hey, God, I believe you, God, I believe you, God, I believe you. But when you step out on that limb, when you lift that knife up to drive it down, now we know what you really believe. It's easy to sit in a blue chair on Sunday morning or Wednesday night when there's an inspiring message preached about believing God and God will be there and say, yes, amen! And you wake up in the middle of the night and you're not in a blue chair surrounded by 600 believers and pastors, you know, preaching at the top or Pastor Ray's, you know, jumping around and doing what Pastor Ray does and inspiring us all and you're there by yourself. Now you find out what you really believe. Or you walk out of a doctor's office hearing those words booming in your ears. Cancer. Now you find out what you really believe. Verse 22. You see that faith, this is what I like, faith was working together with his works and by his works or actions, his faith was made perfect. That word means complete. Faith is passive 
until it's released or acted on. It, it's dormant inside of you, all the potential. So you remember, we already talked about it. grace is God's done it. From God's side, He's given you everything that pertains to life and godliness. The challenge is on our side, receiving it through that straw of faith. And that's not a passive thing. It's not just sitting there saying, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. It's not trying to work something up. What you believe, then you need to begin to act on. Because it's the acting on what you believe that seals it, that bursts it, that makes it real, that makes it tangible. That seals it in you. You're actually, you following me? All right. Most of you are. Okay. Faith was working together with his works for by work. Let's put it this way. Faith was working together with his actions. And by his actions, faith was made complete. God said, now I know that you truly reverence me. Now I know that you truly believe me because you were willing to obey me even to the extent of driving that knife through your son because you believe that if necessary, you would raise him back from the dead. Say, so, well, that was back in those days. No, that still happens today. Believers still raise people from the dead. I know a brother a, has a large ministry. He got a phone call one night that his oldest son had died of an overdose and was in the morgue naked under a sheet with a toe tag on. And by the time they got there, it had been five and a half hours. And all the way in the car there, he kept saying, all his senses kept saying, what, grieve, 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 grieve. You're entitled to grieve. But something in him, because he'd spent time meditating in the Word, something in him said, this is not the end. This is not the end. This does not have to be the end. This does not have to be the end. And he chose because he was going to look foolish. Everybody's expecting him to cry. His wife was upset at him. And he said, this is going to be the greatest miracle you've ever seen. He said those words by faith. And when he got in there and they pulled the drawer out, they pulled the cover back, he spoke over his son and his son who'd been dead five and a half hours sat up and took a deep breath. And it's sound mind today. See, God wanted to do that. But if he instead had just gotten overwhelmed by what people think, what's everybody going to say, what am I entitled to do, you know, this is the worst thing that can go on, and I know many of us have lost loved ones, and this is no condemnation, but we're showing you what's in the cup. What God has potential that God will do for us, but it's received by faith, not by the world's method, not by thinking the world's thought, but by thinking God's thought, by speaking God's word, by acting in accordance with what we said. See, he didn't just sit there and say, well, I know I believe that. He spoke words of faith out. Our son will live and not die. Jesus did that. Remember Jairus? The ruler, the, 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 the synagogue ruler, he comes to Jesus and said, my daughter's at the point of death. Jesus said, I'll come and they're on their way and the woman with the issue of blood stops him in whatever time that took and is about to go back on. A messenger comes and says, don't bother the master anymore. It's too late. Your daughter's dead. 
Imagine what those words sounded like. Before Jairus could open his mouth, I just get this picture. Jesus grabbed him by the robe. And he says, man, fear not. Only believe. Don't let in your mind and don't let out of your mouth any words of unbelief because I haven't changed what I've come to do. That report doesn't stop me. See, Jesus wasn't ruled by his senses. He wasn't ruled by what everybody thought or were going to think. And then the interesting thing that Jesus did is he told this whole crowd to stay there except Peter, James, and John. And then he started saying when he got there, they said they were moaning and they were tumulting, the King James says. I like that. I mean, there was a, there was a, there was a terrible scene going on there. And back then they had professional mourners. They just came around and mourned because they liked to mourn. Got something like that today. And he said, he threw them all out. You can't be too concerned what people think. And he said, the child sleeps. He's making a confession of faith. They're all saying, oh, he's dead. Oh, she's dead. He's saying, no, the child sleeps. This is temporary. He spoke and acted what he believed, and it came about. Oh, we got to end here. By grace, that's God's side. God's filled the, the cup up with vanilla awful. I may have to go have one. With vanilla awful, awful. And he's given it to us in Christ. Everything you're ever going to need that pertains to life and godliness, health, provision, is there. You can't earn it. But you have to receive it through the straw of faith. And to do that, you've got to believe it's yours. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Why? It's not the faith itself. It's what faith allows you to do. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. In order to come to God, you must believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for the gift of your grace. You've done everything we're ever going to need. And Lord, tonight, we come to you for whatever the needs are in our life. And help us to understand that we can't get you to do anything because you've already done it. Help us to see that everything we need has been given to us in Christ. There are people in this room tonight that are struggling maybe emotionally, maybe physically, maybe financially, maybe all of those. And everything that you have for them, you've opened heaven up and held nothing back. And it's not that we don't have enough faith, it's that we don't exercise that faith because often we don't have confidence in it. And tonight, Lord, help us to see what it is you've done for us and that it is ours tonight to simply receive through that wonderful, amazing gift of faith that you've given to us. And for that grace, we thank you in Jesus' name.